from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Brent Poyer. Brent became a pacifist in college before becoming a Baha'i. Today, he is an immigration lawyer and a great storyteller. I started the interview by asking Brent where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in uh, a suburb of Los Angeles, out in the San Fernando Valley, Granada Hills, California. My folks worked very, very hard to come up from poverty into the middle class. And they worked very hard to put us kids all through Catholic school. So I went through Catholic elementary and high school, then a year and a half of the seminary, and then graduated from a Catholic university. We lived a mile or two from the foothills, which are now covered with houses. But at the time, it was a good place for hiking. And I very much enjoyed riding my bike out in the countryside. And so it was a good place to grow up. And I had a good family life. Tell me about that. Well, Mom and Dad met during the Second World War, toward the end of the war in Los Angeles, when Dad was in the Navy. I was the firstborn child in 1946. As I say, we were poor. We actually lived in a pressed cardboard trailer for several months. Dad eked out a living selling a Catholic magazine door-to-door. But I was very loved and I cherish the photographs of my infancy when they doted on me, and so did my grandparents. I'm the oldest of five children. I have three sisters and a brother. Mom and Dad banged around for a while from house to house and family member to family member until they finally could get settled. So I spent a few years growing up in Waterloo, Iowa, beginning of elementary school, and then then we moved to the L.A. area. So did you have childhood aspirations to be a priest? I suppose I thought I could help people. The nuns tried to encourage kids to go into the priesthood. They, there was no real pressure. It was also that I wanted some separation from my parents, and I couldn't bring myself to admit that. I wanted to think my own thoughts, and I knew that if I went to the seminary, I'd be 500 miles away, and they wouldn't complain about my being that distance away. That was a factor in it, too. What were your interests in studying at the seminary? The courses were assigned to us. It Mm -hmm. was just general liberal arts, Mm -hmm. although I greatly benefited from studying some of the classics and from a course in formal logic. At that time, I really had no real clear sense of who I was or where I was headed. There were a few kids who had a sense of career direction. I wasn't really one of them. After a year and a half, I came home and I realized I really hated the seminary. And I thought about it as teenage kids being up on a mountaintop was not the way to train us 
with book learning for 10 years in monasteries and seminaries and then send us out in the world to help people with their real-world problems with their children's health and making mortgage payments. And so I decided that I would go out into the world, and if I could live by the New Testament, then I'd see about coming back to the seminary and telling other people how to live. I was interested in science. I did pretty well in my science classes when I was in the seminary. I went to St. Mary's College up near Oakland, a very good school. I did okay in math, and, and I did well in English because my father taught me to read when I was about three years old. He got a set of wooden blocks. He saw that I was interested in what he was reading in the newspaper. And so before I went to school, I had learned to read from reading the large print letters on the headlines of the newspaper and the letters on the wooden blocks that we would spread out on the floor. Mom and Dad provided good reading for all of us kids, and we were too poor to have a good television. So our evening entertainment was some board games, and so we all did well in quite a number of areas of school. So what did you do after that year and a half of, at St. Mary's? I transferred to Loyola University, which is now Loyola Marymount in Los Angeles, and I enjoyed Loyola very, very much. And having gotten out of the seminary, I really was uh, quite the social butterfly, and I joined all manner of organizations, Knights of Columbus and a fraternity. I became the social director of the school for the dances. I met a million people and really had fun and met many wonderful people. I really cherish the memory of those times. And then beyond the socializing, I mean, that was the first year, and, and then things really changed. How's that? I was in the library at Loyola, and I came across a newsletter from the Mennonites. And I read that the Mennonites were people who obeyed the government in terms of military service, but they obeyed the New Testament command to love your enemies. And so they went into the service as medics. And I was immediately taken by this, and I brought it home and showed it to my parents, who, to my surprise, were not pleased. They were very patriotic and didn't like pacifist things, but that started me reading pacifist literature. I uh, consumed Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Leo Tolstoy, Thoreau, and really became convinced that the New Testament directed people to be kind to their enemies and to do good to those who harmed them. And I began to investigate applying this to society as a whole. This was 1968, the height of anti-Vietnam War activities, of the civil rights movement, the women's movement, these were the things that were on our minds and were the subjects of our discussions. This is right around the time Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King were killed. And I thought to myself, well, the New Testament, the Word of God, has to be the solution to these problems. And the pacifists said that they were applying the teachings of Christ to love your neighbor to these problems. And so 
I dropped all the social stuff I was doing and became consumed with really developing a philosophy of life and understanding what the Catholic teachings were on peace and how to accomplish social change and establish justice in the world. And in what form did that take? Well, Martin Luther King was calling the people to march, and he was inspired by Gandhi. And Gandhi said that it was important to disobey unjust laws, laws that separate people by class, laws that divide people, one nation from the other. And uh, Leo Tolstoy was a very ardent Christian pacifist. He's really the grandfather of Christian pacifism. His letters to Christian Russian soldiers convinced me that what I should do was refuse military induction, mail in my draft cards. I had a student deferment. I was entitled to remain outside the military as long as I kept up my studies at the university. I talked to everyone I knew, friends, employers, family members, priests, retired military people. No one could convince me that the Christian teaching was different than what the pacifists were saying. So let me think when this was. Yeah, it was late 1968. I mailed my draft cards into the draft board and got the fastest turnaround I had ever gotten, and they sent me back a new card that said I was eligible to be drafted. And right around the time of my graduation in May of 1969, with a bachelor's in psychology and a minor in biology, I got my notice to go down to the draft board for my physical examination, and if I passed the physical, I would be inducted, I thought, into the Army. So this was a, a very tumultuous time because breaking the law was not something that was part of me. Uh, I had been raised in a very traditional patriotic family, but it seemed to me that that's what Christ wanted me to do, and nobody could convince me otherwise. I listened very carefully. So in May of 1969, when I was called down there, I went to the induction center and I began talking to all the other young men down there about war. I was not against my government. I wasn't against the Vietnam War. I had concluded that it was improper for a Christian to enter the military service at all, and if it had been World War II, at that time I would have done exactly the same thing. In every room, I said... Look how they're examining us. They're not talking to us. We're just, I didn't use the term cannon fodder, but, you know, I just pointed out they weren't really treating us like human beings. We were just physical specimens for them to examine. The doctors talked to one another and not us. I said, if you think you should go in, great, go in. But if you think you shouldn't go, then don't go. About half the guys, it seemed to me, didn't make it through the physical examination and at the end of the day, a group of, I don't know, maybe 40 or 50 of us were brought into a room to be inducted. To our surprise, a Marine major entered and announced that 
eight of us were going to be inducted into the Marine Corps, drafted into the Marine Corps, and he called my name first. And everybody laughed because they knew I wasn't going to go, and I stood up and said, Sir, I won't be going today. After the induction ceremonies where everybody else was inducted into the Marine Corps and the Army, he took me to his office in the presence of officers of the Coast Guard, Marine Corps, Army, Navy, all the services were there. He commanded me to step forward and be inducted into any service, and I refused. And then he said, would you like to write a letter? And I said, oh boy, would I, you know, because I was quite the evangelist with my pacifist teachings. And he said, would you mind beginning by stating that you know this is against the law? You know, at the time, I thought that this was the way to work for peace. I now know it isn't, but at the time, I acknowledged that I knew the law and that it was serious to break it, and I wrote this letter. I still have a copy of it. I had given a copy to my aunt, and she recently sent it back to me. I was eventually, a few months later, summoned to federal court. I stated my case. The chaplain of the university testified that uh, he was my confessor and that for me it would be a mortal sin, but I was convicted and sentenced to three years in prison. But since I was not hateful towards my government and I wasn't trying to stir people up against the government, or you know, I, I was religiously based as a Catholic, the judge sentenced me to do hospital work for three years. In the course of that hospital work, I uh, met my first Baha'i, a woman who had brought her daughter in as a patient. And this was the summer of 1970 in Inglewood, California. And that's when life really took a very different course. How did the first encounter go with the Baha'i that you met? I handed her my letter, which basically said that all men are brothers, and I was trying to find a way to work for peace. And she read it, and she said, well, you're a Baha'i, and you don't know it. And I thought to myself, well, you're crazy, and you don't know it, but you're cute, so I'll listen. So I said, what are you talking about? What's Baha'i? And she said, well, Christ has returned. And I thought to myself, well, did the world end when I wasn't looking? And what about the angels and the comets coming out of the sky and so on? This began a period of investigation and reading, slowly at first, that culminated six months later in my becoming a Baha'i. But the first encounter was just the introduction, and then she mentioned at one point the name of Baha'u'llah, and I was very taken with that name. I found it to be a very powerful name. She explained to me that in the Gospel, when it says that at the time of Christ's return, there will be a light from east to west, she said the light from east to west is the divine light, the light that is spoken of in the first chapter and the first verse of the Gospel of John, and at the beginning of Genesis. It's God's light. It's not physical light. And the light of this space had spread to the West. And I thought to myself, well, I like that interpretation. And if you can demonstrate 
that all the other prophecies having to do with the Second Coming are to be understood that way, and you can explain them that way, great. This is what I thought to myself. And this began the process of striving to understand the Scripture. It also began the process of my reconciliation to my parents and my reconciliation to my government. You were curious enough or not turned off enough to take this seriously enough to investigate the claims of the Baha'i Faith? I was very, very hungry for trying to figure out how to to work for peace. And what happened was I became very disenchanted with the pacifist movement. I had taken the first step, which all the pacifists said that military-age young men should refuse to go. And I thought to myself, well, what about women? What about older people? What about children? What about mothers at home with their children? There should be some way for everybody to work for peace. There has to be something more. And the deeper I dug into the pacifism, and I was closely associated with the American Friends Service Committee, volunteer worker for them. I had good friends with those wonderful people. But the more I dug in, the more I felt they didn't have the answers, at least not answers that satisfied me for working for a world with God's justice. I laid claim to Christ's promise in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. They will be satisfied. And that was very reassuring to me, and I looked for how to apply his teachings to the world's problems to get that justice. And I came up empty, because the New Testament only talks about love. And I became convinced that love was not the right way to treat a nation's enemies. It just didn't work. But, and, and it was really a time of great spiritual peril for me. It was a time of great darkness. And for a time, I thought of myself as an atheist. And I moved away from the Church and away from Christ, because I didn't find the answers there. Then, when I reached a critical point of separation from the Quakers and the pacifists, where I knew they didn't have the answers, and I was empty. I was really at a point of real, deep spiritual darkness. And just a few days later, a Baha'i invited me to go to a fireside in Pasadena at the home of Jim and Dorothy Nelson, while initially I, I found them, well, these are middle-class people, and I had rejected everything about the middle class, I listened, and Jim, as he spoke about Baha'u'llah, and as he spoke about the Baha'i teachings, I was deeply moved. I felt great beauty moving through my soul. And for the first time, I heard people with answers. These were not people who were looking for a way to work for peace. They had found it. And I just had to go through all that heartache and all that unsuccessful searching to be willing to look beyond the confines of the Catholic faith and to investigate what initially was, to me, the strange-sounding Baha'i faith and to take a serious look at it. And I did take a serious look. You had said earlier that breaking the law in this regard, 
breaking the law of induction into the military service, that this is the way to work for peace. And then you said you found out later that it's not the way, and maybe you could explain why you found out or what what was it that caused you to think differently and that that was not the way to work for peace. At the home of Jim and Dorothy Nelson, Jim at the time was a municipal judge. His wife Dorothy was the dean of USC Law School, and a couple, three years later, she was appointed to the federal bench as a circuit judge on the Court of Appeals. These people were very, very steeped in the Baha'i teachings and in matters of justice. And I remember sitting down with Dorothy Nelson and saying, how can you talk about justice and obedience to government in the same sentence? Because I had become convinced that the primary tool for establishing justice was to break the law. And she quoted to me a verse from Baha'u'llah, the best beloved of all things in my sight is justice. It's from one of Baha'u'llah's writings called The Hidden Words. And while it didn't directly answer my question, it was beautiful. She and Jim loaned me a book called The Gleanings, and here I had, you know, over the previous two or three years, gone from a conservative Catholic boy into a social radical, and now I was being called back the other direction again, and these Baha'is believed in the Bible, and I had thrown out the Bible in a sense. I had stopped believing, and so I had to travel back some of the distance I had gone, but every step of the way was confirming. Every step of the way I found satisfying answers, eventually came to understand the approach that Baha'u'llah counsels his followers, or demands of his followers, to obey the governments, to be loyal servants of the governments, that there's another way to work for justice in the world and for peace. In the course of this, in uh, 1974, a miracle happened in my life, one of the very few. I was walking down the street, and an inner voice said for me to enter a building on my right. And I looked at the building. It was the employment office. I thought to myself, I, I have a good job. I like my job. I work at the hospital. I don't need to go in the employment office. And this powerful inner urge insisted that I go in that building. And I stopped in the middle of the street and had this argument with myself. I don't want to go in the building. But this inner urge was insistent. And so I walked into the building, and on the wall I saw a poster, and it was aimed at the military-age men who had gone to Canada. And though I hadn't, it had a phone number on it that I knew that I should call, and it was the White House. There was a commission to reconcile people who had fled the country to avoid the draft, and I spoke to them, and I was transferred to a lawyer in the pardon office. He said, would you like a presidential pardon? And I thought, sure. So he sent me some forms, and I explained the process that I had gone through that I've just explained to you, and where I had started out, and that now I was a Baha'i, and I was going to be obedient to my government, and I was reconciled, 
and I requested a presidential pardon, and President Gerald Ford issued a pardon to me. Uh, this was in the wake of his pardon of President Nixon and his efforts to reconcile the various elements in our country. So I received a full, free, and complete pardon from President Ford in the mid-'70s, and that made it possible for me to enter the legal profession, But and it was a gift. And so I had done what I felt I should do. I had maintained my integrity. I had not gone to prison, and uh, my record had been cleared. So worked out very well for me. You said that there was another way to work for peace, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on what that means. Well, there's a document written by the head of the Baha'i Faith, Universal House of Justice, the document is called The Promise of World Peace. It was written maybe 20 years ago. And in this, it elaborates the steps toward peace and the foundations of peace and how the essential Baha'i teachings relate to the establishment of a just social order and the peace that has been promised in all the scriptures of the world. It demonstrates, for example, that peace is not just a single issue point about reducing arms or the size of armies, but it is also, for example, establishing equality between the sexes. Because as long as half the world's population is kept from being educated, and its potential fully developed, and women's voices from being heard in Parliament and town councils, as long as women are not equal and, and the image is given of a bird, if one wing is weak, the bird can't fly. This is an essential component in working for peace. And so what this did was it brought together, in my mind, the women's movement for equality, and working for peace. There are other aspects to working for justice, and one of the things that I learned was the error that Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Tolstoy were making, because the Baha'i teachings are also replete with admonitions to Love your enemies and be kind to your enemies and do good to those who harm you. Same teachings as Christ gave. But they make it clear that this mercy, this loving kindness, is for relationships between individuals, but that governments must be guided by justice and not by mercy. And so I came to understand that if the president of the United States is a Christian, and he is struck on the cheek, he can turn the other cheek. He can show kindness and maybe win a brother. But if the east coast of the nation is attacked, he as president can't turn the other coast. He can't expose the nation and say, well, we're going to be kind to you, enemy, and we think that if we're kind enough to you, you will give up your intentions of invading us. This would be madness, but 
this is really what pacifism says. If you are good enough to your enemies, including at the level of nation-state, that that's the way to peace. And Baha'u'llah talks more in terms of creating international law enforcement, and just as local laws are enforced by a police force, and national laws by national guards and so on, there have to be international laws that are enforced militarily. Baha'u'llah also had, has brought teachings at this level, as well as the need for an international parliament, an international court, a whole structure for elevating the human race which has moved through family and city-state and nation-state into a divinely inspired system of international governance. What was your parents' reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? Well, this came hard on the heels of my having told them that I was refusing military induction, which caused them agony. It was a very, very deep heartache and a, a humiliation for them that I refused induction. I knew it would hurt them, but Christ had said, if you love your parents more than me, you are not worthy of me. And so I clung to him, and I did what he, I thought he wanted me to do, and Mom and Dad got through it as best they could. It brought them closer, and then... A couple of years later, when I became a Baha'i, they didn't like it, and, and Dad said that it hurt them more than my refusing military induction. But I didn't even really notice, because I was so completely convinced that this was the right thing to do, that this was what Christ wanted me to do, was to recognize him in his return, in the person of Baha'u'llah, that I knew that it would all work out for my folks. And the strange thing was that almost 40 years later, when my dad was just within a few months of passing away, he said, you know, Brent, I raised you to be a moral man. And back when you did this with the military, you were trying to be a moral man in the way you understood it, and I apologize for standing in your way. And I was floored. But uh, I said that he didn't need to apologize. I needed to apologize, and I was sorry for the hurt that I had caused him, and we were brought very, very close. But Mom didn't want to hear anything about the Baha'i faith. I came in with a Baha'i book, and she asked me some questions. You know, why are you a Baha'i? And I said, well, he's the return of Christ. And she said, how can that be? And so I began to explain from the Baha'i teachings that, in the Bible, it says that before the Messiah comes, Elijah will return, and that the New Testament says that John the Baptist was the return of Elijah, the return of his qualities and his spirit and his power and his station. And he said, in the same way, Baha'u'llah is the return of Christ. He's got a new name that was promised in the book of Revelation, but he has the same spirit, and he's come to this age. And Mom couldn't hear a word of it. She threw the book across the room. And she said, don't ever mention Baha'i in this house again. Don't ever bring a Baha'i book in here. And if you ever get married as a Baha'i, don't invite me to the wedding because I won't come. And that was in the early 70s. And it was about a decade later 
that, I mean, I knew that I needed mom's consent because the Baha'i law says you cannot marry unless you have the consent of your parents. But when mom met Vicky, she fell in love with her, and mom and dad were there at the Baha'i Center in Los Angeles at our wedding in 84. And uh, I better get my anniversary date straight. And uh, 85. <laughs> As we're coming up on our 25th, <laughs> I met Vicky in 83, and we got married in 85 at the Baha'i Center in L.A. They came to understand that it was something good, never you know, understood or accepted it, but could see the great change that it had made in my outlook on life, my relationship to them, my happiness, my productivity, everything it was completely turned around from the the darkness of the time of my pacifist involvement. How did becoming Baha'i inform what you did in life? Well, what I did, I was, I became a Baha'i in January of 71. I was single, working at a hospital, and I began devouring Baha'i literature. And for a year and a half, I read Baha'i books. I had found a key to understanding the sacred scriptures, I had found a path to working for peace, and I really wanted to understand it. So there was a period of time when I just studied, and I went to Baha'i classes everywhere that I could, just imbibed it as much as possible. A few years later, one of the ways the Baha'i faith affected my direction in life was I wanted a sense of career direction. I was working in hospitals as an orderly. I had worked as an eligibility worker in the social welfare office, but I felt that these were just jobs and really not my life profession. So I went to the local governing body, the local House of Justice of the Baha'is, now known as a spiritual assembly, and I set an appointment for consultation, and I presented my questions. And I, I said, should I learn a, a trade that I can learn quickly, or should I go to graduate school? And if graduate school, in what field? Because I don't have a clue. I've thought about all of them. And the upshot of it was that the assembly recommended I consult a certain expert, that I do go to graduate school, and I ended up getting admitted to uh, night school at a law school within driving distance in Sacramento. So I went to law school at McGeorge Law School, and eventually, when I was able to pick elective courses, because there's such an emphasis on internationalism and world culture in the Baha'i faith, I chose courses in international law. In addition, one of those was a course in immigration law. It was really the best course I took in law school. I'm a former immigration official, and that's now my livelihood. I assist people over the Internet with applications, generally faculty and researchers at universities around the country. All of this was informed by this reorientation of my thoughts towards international things, Another way that the Baha'i faith affected me was that I became a lot less arrogant, a lot more patient with people. I was pretty short with people, older people, for example. I became a lot more patient with, with everybody, really, and to respect 
people of different political persuasions, educational backgrounds, races, and uh, really strive to show genuine respect and to listen to their points of view. So that's another way that the Baha'i faith affected me. I became much closer to my brother and my sisters. So those are examples of how it has affected me. Now, I'm kind of curious why the local spiritual assembly or the expert that the local spiritual assembly recommended, that this expert led you to law. What was the reasoning behind that? I knew that I didn't want to work with my hands. I knew that I enjoyed working with people. I enjoyed intellectual activity. And the information I gave him about the kinds of work I had done that I didn't like and the kinds of work I had done that I did like and that I had good verbal skills. He said, I have one recommendation to you, and that is uh, McGeorge Law School at night if you can get in. And I had terrible grades, because at Loyola I was busy socializing and not studying. But through the grace of God, I got accepted to an ABA-accredited law school. I um, pegged the English language ability portion of the law school admission test, because it all goes back to Dad teaching me to read. All of us kids had good verbal skills. That, and I read a Baha'i book just before I took that test. I read the book, God Passes By, which is a history of the Baha'i faith, written in a very elevated, persuasive, eloquent style, with a a very comprehensive English vocabulary. And that also greatly enhanced my score on it. So I was quite surprised when he recommended law because it never crossed my mind to go into law. I was a touchy-feely kind of guy, and I had studied psychology and thought in terms of social work and so on. But I followed the guidance, and I knocked on the doors. Lo and behold, they opened. And after I completed law school, I did a year of post-grad international law studies at the United Nations in Vienna, and uh, did some traveling in Eastern Europe, met Baha'is behind the Iron Curtain in Prague, Budapest. That also was life-changing in that it helped me to understand the civil rights we enjoy in America and what these people were deprived of, what oppression is really like. So uh, that was in 1982. While you were going to law school, did you ever wonder, is this really, even though this was the guidance you gave, was it like, at any time, did you wonder, gee, is this really the path I should be taking, And but you just continued on? I didn't have really serious questions about it. In fact, I met an eminent Baha'i lawyer, Dr. Navidi, who had been of inestimable assistance to the head of the Baha'i faith, the guardian of the Baha'i faith, in the 1950s. This man was an eminent international lawyer residing in Monaco, and he assisted the head of the Baha'i faith by traveling all throughout Africa and consulting with heads of state and ministers of religion to get permission for the Baha'i faith to be practiced in those countries. 
he came to California to visit his daughter, who's a professor at Stanford University. And I was working during various, uh, during my vacation periods from law school. I worked at the Baha'i School in the mountains above Santa Cruz, the Bosch Baha'i School. I worked as the cook and read in the library and so on. Someone said, well, Dr. Navidi is here. And I said, well, explain to me who he is. And I saw the caliber of the services that he was rendering to the Baha'i faith. And I asked him what he thought about my direction. And should I study international business law, like contracts and export law, or should I study public international law, which is like the law of the sea and the law of space and things like that? And he said to study both. He was very encouraging, and I made it through. One of my professors was Anthony Kennedy, who was a federal judge in Sacramento and a few years later was appointed by President Reagan to the United States Supreme Court. He was my constitutional law professor twice, because the first time I took his class, I didn't do well in it, and I had to repeat it. Anthony Kennedy was my con law professor. He was very interesting. But I I did make it through, and I did pass the California bar on the first try. And then I met Vicky and moved out to New Mexico and took the New Mexico bar. And as an immigration lawyer, I can now practice in any state in the country because it's federal law. And so what are you doing in the area of immigration law? Well, there are several different areas within immigration law. For example, there's refugee law, and I've done some refugee law. I don't now. There's also immigration defense, deportation defense. And I'm not as a courtroom lawyer. I need time to develop my arguments. I'm much better, give me a week or two to come up with an argument, and I will be able to research it and write it out. But courtroom lawyers have to have instantaneous reactions, instantaneous logical arguments, and my brain doesn't work that way. So I don't do one of the biggest areas of immigration law, which is defense of people who are being deported. So I have a a pretty narrow practice. I help foreign nationals who are legally in the country, who marry American citizens. Like I say, I I help professional people who have high qualifications that are needed in the United States. Sometimes in the arts, I'm helping a poet. Sometimes in the sciences, I'm helping uh, an eminent electronics engineer who does high-speed data testing. So I have to understand all these things, and my college education in science and liberal arts helps, because I have to explain these fields to immigration officials to persuade them to give green cards to my clients. And that's what I do. I work mostly out of my home. You had said earlier, Brent, that circumstances led you behind the Iron Curtain. Could Could you explain what those circumstances were? During the time that I was living in Salzburg and Vienna, I spent a lot of time with the local Baha'is. And the Baha'is in Austria were responsible for cultivating the Baha'is in some of the Iron Curtain countries, in particular Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and northern Yugoslavia. I was invited by some of the local Baha'is to go with them visit. And I was 
terrified to go, but they convinced me that if I got caught as a Baha'i, I would simply be deported. But the Baha'is in Prague, if they were caught as Baha'is, they would be imprisoned for 10 years. And if they wanted me to come, I really owed it to them to go. And it was really one of the great experiences of my life to meet these people who were really living under terrible circumstances. In those days, people could earn pin money by spying on their neighbors. So a significant part of the population just reported to the government everything everybody was doing. And the Baha'is had to be very, very careful and watching how this resulted in their closeness. I had never seen such closeness in anybody. I made two visits to Prague and a visit to Zagreb and a visit to Budapest where I met an aged Baha'i who had lived through the Second World War in her flat there in Budapest. And these experiences were just very interesting to me to meet people who didn't have it as well as I did. And when I came back to America and I realized that the police in this country would protect my right to be a Baha'i and would protect my right to have Baha'i books on my shelf and to hold committee and spiritual assembly meetings, I could see how profound was the difference from that part of the world where people's civil rights had been taken from them. That was in the early 1980s. The reason I was able to get in contact with you was a Baha'i youth told me that you had given a workshop at the Northeast. Yes, I spoke at a youth conference. I gave some workshops at a youth conference in Connecticut a couple months ago. Right. Storytelling. Right. I thought maybe you could tell me a little bit about how storytelling became an important part of you and what you're trying to convey to folks in regards to storytelling. I have had the benefit of meeting many wonderful people. Whenever I would go to an area or live in an area, I would immediately learn who were the older Baha'is there. And in this way, I met a number of people who had met Abdul Baha, the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, who passed away in 1921. And I became friends with some older Baha'is who had met him. I sought them out, I asked them about their experiences with Abdu'l-Bahá, and I wrote them down, and I have repeated them since, many times. And in addition, living at the Baha'i school, off and on for over five years, that's a real crossroads, and I met, again, many Baha'is with wonderful life experiences, people who had met the guardian of the Baha'i faith, So I developed a store of these various spiritual experiences that people had had and began recounting them. My father had been a good storyteller, and I think all of us kids just learned how to tell a story from Dad. So stories are a wonderful way of conveying spiritual realities to people, and people listen to stories. You really can capture people's attention. So I simply wanted to pass along some suggestions about how to prepare for storytelling, and that Baha'i storytelling is not entertainment. 
The goal isn't to get applause at the end. The goal is to move hearts and to strengthen people's faith and to convey things about the wonders of the Baha'i faith and how it affects people. Do you have a favorite story? I'll share a couple. I met a woman named Inez Graven. She and her sister, India, her sister's name was India, they had traveled to the Holy Land in 1920 and had marvelous experiences with Abdu'l-Bahá. A decade later, in 1931, a decade after the passing of Abdu'l-Bahá, India, who I never met, was living in Paris, and in the middle of the night, she had a vision of Abdu'l-Bahá, who told her to get up and travel across Paris to the house of her friend, another Baha'i, another American Baha'i, and to bring her flowers and to bring her money. India's sister Inez was telling me the story, and she said, imagine, you know, here's this elegant, refined American woman, and she gathers up her belongings, and she separates out a little bit of money she needs for her own expenses and puts the rest into a purse, and at 5 o'clock in the morning asks the office manager of the hotel to call her a taxi to take her to the local florist shop, and the taxi driver said, well, the flower shop is closed. And she said, take me anyway. And it was closed. Take me to the next one. And it was closed. And so she was driving through the streets of Paris at 5.30 in the morning, and they came across the farmer's market, where all the farmers brought their produce into the central marketplace, where all the stores bought their produce. And there was a wagon filled with tulips. And in her vision, Abdu'l-Bahá had said to buy flowers, so she bought an armful of red tulips. And she had a purse with money in it, and she told the driver to go to this address. And so they went across Paris, and she got out of the taxi and approached her friend's front door. And Inez said to me, Imagine! A conservative American woman is standing on her friend's front porch at 5.30 in the morning to bring her flowers and money. And she said, India knocked at the door, and her friend answered and cried out, Abdu'l-Bahá, when she saw her and, and burst into tears. And the lady inside the house was in terrible condition. She obviously was in great anguish, and she was sobbing. India asked her, why are you crying so much? And her friend said, why have you come here? And she said, I had a vision, and Abdu'l-Bahá told me to bring you flowers and money, and here's some money. And she knew her friend was wealthy, and her friend said, everyone thinks I'm wealthy, and I once was, but as you can see, this house is cold, there's not a speck of food in the house. I ran out of money, and I couldn't bring myself to ask anyone for money. And I was so cold and so hungry, I decided to take my life. And I decided that this morning when I got up, I would cast myself into the same. And so I was approaching the door when you knocked. She said, 
Abdu'l-Baha came to my house 20 years ago. And when I opened the door to welcome him, he was standing on my porch with an armful of red tulips. She said, I never dreamed that so great a miracle could come into my life. And this lady, her life and her faith were restored, and she went on to render great service through this extraordinary event. Inez Graven went on pilgrimage in 1920, and again in 1921. When she came home from her pilgrimage in 1920, she was amazed. She was completely changed by the experiences that she had with Abdu'l-Bahá, and she wanted to share the greatness of the Baha'i faith with two women friends back in New York, but she didn't know how to share with them the greatness of the Baha'i faith, and then she had an idea. I'll just have them go and visit Abdu'l-Bahá in the Holy Land. And so she cabled Abdu'l-Bahá, and he cabled permission granted. And so she went to her two friends, all excited, and said, you must go to the Holy Land and you must meet Abdu'l-Bahá. And they agreed to go. These were two non-Bahá'í women. And she went down to the dock and she saw them off. And weeks passed and she went down to the dock and their ship came back and she was there at the dock to meet them. And she said, well, well. And her friends said, oh, we had the best time. You know, we, we had fine dining, and then we went to Egypt, and we saw the pyramids and the Sphinx, and she said, yes, yes, and then we went to the Holy Land, yes, yes, and we went to Jerusalem, and then we went to Mount Carmel, yes, and we met your Abdu'l-Bahá, and he took us to beautiful gardens and lovely shrines. We saw beautiful Persian carpets, and they gave us good food, and he told us funny stories, and they are the nicest people? We had a great time. Is that all? What do you mean? We had a wonderful time. Thank you for introducing us to them. It was great. And so she was floored that they didn't become Baha'is. And so she went back on pilgrimage a year later, and she asked Abdu'l-Bahá, how can this be? I come here, and the wonders of the universe are open before me, and my heart is thrilled with the Holy Spirit, and they come here and nothing happened. How can this be? And Abdu'l-Bahá answered, and his answer is very famous. At the gate of the garden, there are some who stand and look within, but do not care to enter. Others enter part way. Behold the beauty of the garden. Inhale the full fragrance of the flowers, but pass out again by the same gate. But there are always some who enter the garden and, becoming intoxicated with the splendor of what they behold, they remain for life to tend the garden. And Inez took this beautiful quote and gave it to her friends and told them everything, told them the whole story. And one of those women became a Baha'i. Her name was Frances Esty. She wrote a charming little book called The Garden of the Heart with this beautiful pilgrim's note at the beginning of it, and that's the origin of that pilgrim's note was um, Mrs. Graven teaching her friend the Baha'i faith. That's a sweet story, Brent. 
So, Brent, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. I've really enjoyed visiting with you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Brent Poyer, an immigration lawyer and a great storyteller. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.